0: thank you Jim good morning, good morning Bill. it's good to see Rachel and Nathan here back from college to visit us great to have you guys with us how's it going Rachel going so far so good that's right you haven't scared anybody off up there yet okay yeah well she's here so I guess you probably that's that's probably a good thing I suppose glad to have you with us you know, I'm going to talk about something this morning you know a few weeks ago I remember uh, Jim Garrett spoke on the reality of death. And one of the things he said is that you will die. That's a promise. There's another thing that's a very real, uh, very, very much a reality in all of our lives and that we can uh, count on pretty much as universal just as much as death and that's the problem of pain. We will have pain, we will suffer. That's part and parcel of the human existence. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that sums up what life often feels like. And I think for us as a fellowship, it describes at least a part of our circumstances in the past few years. This particular uh, Calvin and Hobbes is a series of panel, each depicting a scene from a single day. First of all, I don't know how well you can see it, so I'll describe them. Calvin sits on a wad of bubblegum. And next, his teacher catches him glancing at his classmates paper and then a bully knocks him down in the hallway the water fountain sprays in his face and then the bug he brought in for show-and-tell escapes then he gets picked last at recess and there's a hair in his lunch and when he heads to the swing set all the seats are occupied and finally he misses the bus and has to walk home in the rain So the last panel of this cartoon, is he's in his bedroom, and Calvin looks at his trusted tiger Hobbes and says, you know, Hobbes, some days even my lucky rocket ship underpants don't help. (laughs) Well, I don't have, we don't have lucky rocket ship underpants. But as followers of Christ, we do have a gracious and merciful, loving God who knows our weaknesses, He knows our frailty, yet we have to be honest and admit that we're in kind of a paradoxical season in the life of this church, having the kind of season in the life of this church that Calvin had in this day that's depicted in this comic strip, with a lot of things that just aren't going right. On the one hand, we're seeing some growth. We're seeing God bringing us wonderful new individuals and families. It's what we've been praying about for three years now. And God is showing himself faithful to respond to those prayers. God continues to use this church to send laborers to the distant fields of harvest. And God is using us to minister in many ways to our community. And we're very thankful for those things, their answers to our prayers. Yet, we're also in a very difficult season with so many individuals facing illnesses, facing disease, or emotionally challenging personal issues or family issues. I spent a few minutes this past week as I was preparing for this morning's sermon looking over each week's intercessory prayer list back to the beginning of 2013. So that's about nine months' worth of intercessory prayer lists. And I had to say after going through that, what a year we have had. Let me remind you of just a few of the things that showed up on the top of our prayer list that we publish each week. We've had Sarah Joy, we've been praying for her and her ongoing neck issues and her colitis. We've had Mary Lou Covington, we've been praying for her, her recovery from paralysis just 18 months ago. We've been praying for her husband Dan, his back issues in the midst of caring for Mary Lou and then his sister died earlier this year. We've prayed for Tom Buck, he was hospitalized and thankfully it wasn't a recurrence of his trigeminal neuralgia. We prayed of course for Vicki and her diagnosis of cancer. (laughs) and the two two surgeries that she's had. We prayed for Spencer, hospitalized with severe headaches and a life-threatening blood vessel problem in his brain. We prayed for Debbie. You remember Debbie had this concussion after she had this very serious bicycle accident. We prayed for Margot as well, who was injured with a broken rib in the same accident. We prayed for Rebecca Wright, who had a heart attack and then had stent procedure. We prayed for Ginger and Rebecca, who were in a car wreck. We prayed extensively for a long time, for Tom and Jody's grandson, Michael. We prayed, of course, for Gordon, who had a heart attack, and it had three different procedures to install stents. We prayed for our brother, Ben Orm, whose wife, Shirley, died suddenly and unexpectedly. We've been praying for Abby Fox, our missionary child who, uh, in the Horn of Africa, who broke her arm. We've been praying for Pat Gregory, her ongoing health issues, and her recent hospitalization. She got out of the hospital Friday, but she'd been in the hospital almost two full weeks. We prayed for Daniel Larrabee, who had the emergency appendectomy while they were here at home on furlough. We prayed just recently for Laura Grinnell, who had a series of mini-strokes. We prayed for Darlene Green, who was hospitalized for some sort of a seizure. We prayed for Jerry Dunn, who had a spider bite, and it looked like he'd been in the ring with Muhammad Ali. This is only some... This is only some of what's been at the top of our intercessory prayer list during 2013. It doesn't include most of the extended family issues that we pray about together. It doesn't include many of the emotionally painful things our TCF families deal with, including prodigal kids or unsaved loved ones or dysfunctional families or broken relationships. It doesn't include everyday illnesses. It doesn't include many of the chronic illnesses. Deaths in extended families. It doesn't include the issues that many of us have with aging parents. And it doesn't extend into last year. This is just the last nine months. It doesn't include all of the ongoing physical and emotional struggles that our brothers and sisters in Christ face here every day. Some of these things we know about, and some of them we don't. Only a select few know. So in the midst of this wonderful and encouraging season of growth in ministry, we're also seeing this suffering and pain among the body as well. And we cry out to the Lord for healing. We cry out for relief from these problems, and that's absolutely appropriate. And we see God move in response to many of these prayers. But it's a paradox, isn't it? Because it seems that some of these prayers go unanswered. Let's be honest this morning. Let's be honest with each other and with God, and recognize the reality is that we pray for things that don't always turn out the way we want, and the way we think would be best. A paradox is a statement that might seem to contradict itself, but which is or might be true. We see a lot of paradoxes in scripture. We see statements that are uh, absolutely true, but seem to be contradictory. For example, how about fully God and fully man when speaking of Jesus. That's, that's a real paradox, isn't it? How about the things that are already and the things that are not yet? We see that in many places in Scripture related to God's kingdom. We have to wrestle with the outworking, the practical realities of these paradoxes in our everyday lives. One paradox we all face, and if we haven't faced it yet, we can be assured that we will, is the paradox of pain. On the one hand, we see in Scripture that pain and suffering has a purpose. Pain produces things in the life of a believer. That's very clear in Romans chapter 5. We'll read a couple verses from there. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that a tough passage to swallow? Not so much that suffering and pain can produce godly character in us, such as endurance and character and hope. That's kind of hard enough. But that because of this, we can rejoice in our sufferings precisely because of what they bring about in us. Rejoicing is not typically the word you'd first think of when you think of suffering. And then we see the model of Jesus himself. Jesus, who endured pain and suffering for a very specific purpose. He knew that his pain would accomplish something critical, vital in human history, and it would gain something. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, and let me pause there for a moment and note that uh, if you go back to Hebrews 11, you see who those witnesses are, and you see what they went through. They're the heroes of the faith, but they're the heroes of the faith who every one of them suffered. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So pain is clearly implied here. We know that the cross was painful. So when we run our race, here we are encouraged to endure. Now, we're not encouraged to endure because it's easy to or because it's fun. We're encouraged to endure because what do you do when you endure? You endure difficult things. Nobody ever describes a great meal or a great vacation by using the word enduring. Oh, I had to endure that great steak dinner. Right? But there's a purpose and a plan as there was for Jesus. The challenge for us is that we don't always see that purpose and that plan. So we're left with something that's incredibly hard for us when we're in pain, whether it be emotional pain or physical pain or both. And trust me, those of you who've been there on both sides know that emotional pain can be even more difficult than physical pain, depending on our individual circumstances. We're left with choosing what we believe. We can believe that pain and suffering are purposeless and totally random or we can believe that God's in charge. We can believe that even when we don't understand, even when we can't begin to see what his purpose is in a given set of painful circumstances, we can believe that because God is good, because he is holy, because he is just, that he will use these things for our good and for his glory. Now, this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky wishful kind of thinking. If it, is that, if it is that, it will not sustain us in the midst of pain and suffering. What do we really believe when we say that we, as believers, are in Christ? Clearly, it cannot mean that we do not suffer any kind of physical or emotional pain. Now, to believe that, we'd also have to believe that we're somehow better than the saints who have gone before us. We'd have to believe that because we're somehow better than the apostles even, or the early church, we're somehow immune from the suffering that they experienced. To believe that we're totally protected in this life from pain means we have to ignore whole portions of Scripture. So we can't go there, can we? But we still, despite this, despite understanding this, we still struggle with pain or even the purpose of it, don't we? even knowing that pain has a purpose, that pain produces good things in the life of a believer, knowing that pain is one of the instruments that God uses to mold us and shape us into his image, into the image and likeness of Christ who was, after all, our model of endurance. Even knowing all these things, we still avoid pain like the plague. And even at this point, we find a paradox because we're told in Scripture to pray for healing, to pray for relief. Yet sometimes that relief does not come, at least in this life. Pain is a truly powerful influence in life. Pain can make you do or say things you don't want to say, even things you don't believe. Think about it. Why is torture such an effective instrument to get people to say or to do something? Because our natural tendency, all of us are there, Our natural tendency is to avoid pain. Only a sadist enjoys pain. Yet here we see the Apostle Paul telling us that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. What a paradox, huh? We see the Apostles arrested and beaten for spreading the gospel in Acts chapter 5. And it says, and when they had called in the Apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Let's read that again. After being beaten, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well... You know, we might look at a verse like that and see the context of it and say, well, that's suffering for the gospel, right? That's just suffering for the gospel. That doesn't have anything to do with what I'm going through. How is Sarah Joy's ongoing pain? How are Laura Grinnell's mini strokes suffering for the sake of the gospel? But in the Romans 5 passage we read just a moment ago, let's be sure to note that it does not say suffering for the gospel or persecution produces the list of things that it says it produces. It doesn't distinguish suffering for the sake of the gospel and suffering in general. So the idea that we can rejoice in our sufferings because of all the things that suffering produces in the life of the believer is for all believers, regardless of the reason for their suffering. Even if the reason for their suffering is sin, and sometimes we see that's true, even if that's true, we can still rejoice because it produces things in us. Yet it remains a powerful paradox for us. Pain, we have to be honest and admit, pain is not entirely powerless in our lives. Pain can change us, and it can produce in us God's character. Yet pain also has the power to change other things about our lives that we probably wouldn't choose at the outset of a bout of pain. Let's give me, let me give you a few examples. Spencer and Sarah Joy are faithful servants in this body, but their infirmities over the last couple of years have caused them to miss some opportunities to serve, things that they would have done if they were able, but they're unable to. Mary Lou Covington, for example, has one of the most fruitful and effective ministries of any of our missionaries. If you hear the stories of the hundreds and even thousands being discipled, in part because of the way God uses Mary Lou and uses Dan, you'd be amazed and you'd be grateful to God for it, yet the pain of her illness these past 18 months has caused her to have to lay some things down, even seasons of ministry, and that's why pain is such a paradox. Why? Why, we might ask God, why would you allow such a faithful, fruitful, effective servant to be sidelined, even for a season? We can be honest with each other. We can be honest before God. Whether we're honest before God or not, he knows. But we can be honest with each other, right? And just simply say, we don't always understand. We don't always understand. We can be biblically realistic, too. And we can note that God just does things differently than we do because he's God and we're not. We can know that his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that means there are many things this side of eternity we cannot understand. So where does that leave the faithful believer in Christ? It leaves us in the same place it always leaves us when we are at the end of all of our questions. It leaves us in the same place that Job was in the book of Job after he suffered many things that most of us can only imagine. It leaves us not with answers, but with God's consistent word to us, trust me, trust me. I'm God, and you're not. I know best, you don't. So trust me. But can we also, even recognizing that this is true, can we admit how hard that is? That's hard. That's hard. It was hard for Job. And Job was a man that God commended in the heavenlies. In Job chapter 1, verse 8, it says about Job, he was a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Job had the kind of season in his life when even his lucky rocket ship underpants didn't seem to help very much, did it? This was followed by the very weak comfort of his friends who looked for reasons why Job's suffering was Job's fault. They tried to explain the unexplainable, and they did a miserable job. And God's answer at the end of it all was basically, Job, you and your friends don't have a clue. I'm God, and you're not. This is just the beginning of God's answer. And we read in Job chapter 38, beginning with verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Very humbling. Tell me if you have understanding. You think you know so much, you tell me. Isn't that the gist of the paradox of pain? Not just for Job, but for us. We don't have understanding, at least entire understanding, We don't have understanding. We don't know enough. God took four chapters in the book of Job to say that to him. You don't understand. And in the end, Job realized that he really didn't understand as much as he may have thought at the outset of this. And we read in Job, I'm sorry, let me go back to Job 42, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So we cannot explain the paradox. And though I do believe it's okay, and I think it's even important for us to wrestle with these things because they're matters of faith, it's also important for us to remember that when we try to explain things, we're often treading into areas that we simply cannot understand. Here's a helpful commentary. The main question in the book of Job is timely. Why do believers experience troubles and suffering? Through a long debate, Job's supposedly wise friends were unable to answer this question. Job's friends made a serious error for which God rebuked them. They assumed that trouble comes only because people sin. People make the same mistake today when they assert that sickness or lack of material blessings is a sign of unconfessed sin or lack of faith. Though normally, but not always, following God leads to a happier life and rebelling against God normally, but not always, leads to an unhappy life, God is in control. In our world invaded by sin, calamity and suffering come to good and bad alike. This does not mean that God is indifferent, uncaring, unjust, or powerless to protect us. Bad things happen because we live in a fallen world where both believers and unbelievers are hit with the tragic consequences of sin. God allows evil for a time, although he turns it around for our good. In everybody's favorite verse, we read Romans 8.28, right? We may have no answers as to why God allows evil, but we can be sure that he is all powerful and knows what he is doing. Make God your foundation. You can never be separated from his love. So the key to the story of Job is also the key to the paradox of pain for us. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. He wants to be our firm foundation. He wants us to trust that even in the midst of pain, we can never be separated from his love. Explanations can be a substitute for trust. God's interested not in explaining himself. He's interested in our faith in him. Nothing is quite like suffering in its ability to remind us how little control we have over anything, really. We have so little power which is why we need an all-powerful God. The gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, allows us the freedom to be honest in our pain. It gives us the confidence that our ability to cope with or do away with suffering is not the point. The point God's making is trust me. Though we've recognized the power that pain can have in our lives, there are also some things that pain cannot do. In April 1994, many of you remember Willard Hudson, one of the founding members of this church. He was by then an elder emeritus. Don't you love this picture? Now, Willard's the guy on the left of the screen, not the handsome devil in the beard on the right. By this, by this point in April 94, Willard was an elder emeritus. He'd been just diagnosed with cancer, and that cancer would take his life about a year later. That day, from this pulpit, Willard, preached a message titled, What Cancer Cannot Do. I want to remember just a few points from that message today by highlighting some of the things Willard said on that day in light of our look at the paradox of pain. Because while our pain or cancer or any suffering can do some things, we have to be honest and recognize that, there are other things that pain cannot do. One of the things most people remember about Willard is that he had a great sense of humor. Those of you who heard Willard, you remember that, don't you? He proved it that day by joking about what most of us were at that point pretty close to tears about. And this is a quote from that sermon. Willard said, for those of you who are wondering about this certain radiance about me, it's not because of a spiritual encounter, it's because I've had two weeks of radiation treatment. The glow is of the world, but it beats the chemotherapy because you lose your hair and I wanted to keep my sideburns. Now, those of us who remember Willard don't remember much hair on his head to begin with. See the picture. In saying this, Willard gave us permission to maintain our sense of humor. Willard noted, among other things, that cancer, and for our purposes this morning, pain, cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It can't destroy confidence. It cannot kill friendship. It can't shut out memories. It cannot silence courage. It cannot evade, invade the soul. It can't reduce eternal life. It can't quench the spirit. And finally, it cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. One of the things that Willard said that day is that cancer cannot cripple love. And he spoke of Nettie, and he spoke of loving her more than ever. And at that point, they'd been married 52 years, and he said the love will be there whether she gets sick or not. He said... When we stood before a preacher 52 years ago, we made a commitment. The love endures. Some people run off and leave when one of their mates gets sick. I have to note that I've seen the reality of a committed love a lot this past year. I've been at the hospital with Gordon and Sue when Gordon had a heart attack. I've been at the hospital after Debbie's bike accident and James was at her side. I've been with Paul as he awaited the results of Vicky's second surgery. I've seen the pain and suffering of these believers, and it could not cripple the love that God has forged in these marriages over many years. And that remains true, especially after the initial crisis. And that's when the hard work really begins. That's when love, a committed love, sustains these families. I think, for example, of the months of caretaking that Dan had to do with Mary Lou Covington to see this couple together now as we did a few weeks ago, Mary Lou doing much better but still facing challenges ahead. But nevertheless, they're proclaiming God's faithfulness. I'm inspired. I'm inspired by that. To hear Vicki Brigard say that her life is in God's hands and that one of her primary concerns is for her children to know that despite her suffering, God is good. I am really inspired by that. These are people of faith. These are people who trust God even when they don't understand. We have right in our midst, and I could go on and on giving examples from what I've seen. One of the privileges that we have as elders is to walk with you through the fun, good stuff, but through the hard stuff that you go through in your lives. And so we're there at pretty important moments with so many of you. And it is a privilege to walk with you, my brothers and sisters, through these difficult things in your lives. I could give many examples of the words of faith that have come from people in the midst of these things. The love that we have for each other isn't the only thing that pain cannot truly cripple. The most critical and the most vital thing that cannot be changed, that pain cannot do, is cripple the love of God for us. In our pain, in our suffering, God doesn't promise to explain himself. He does hear and respond to our prayers, but he doesn't promise to answer them in the way that we think he should. He doesn't even promise to relieve our pain in this life, even though in his mercy he often does. So I think we can keep praying. We keep praying. We can keep praying for relief. We can keep praying for healing. What God promises us, though, is something so much better. He promises us himself. He promises to be with us always. He promises to never leave us. And when you think about it, what would you rather have? Would you rather go through all these kinds of things with the presence of God being very real in your life, or would you rather not go through any pain and suffering but have God be absent? Think about that for a moment. When God says, trust me, I believe he desires the kind of faith we've heard before from this pulpit. We want to have a but-if-not kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that recognizes what God is able to do and isn't afraid to ask him for it, as long as it's clear that what we're asking him is still within the realm of God's will. But this is also the kind of faith that recognizes that if for reasons that only God truly understands, he chooses not to do precisely what we ask him to do, we will trust him. We will trust him. We will serve him. We read in Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were threatened with being thrown into a fiery furnace if they didn't worship the idols in this uh, this kingdom. And it says, uh, beginning with verse 15, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. And they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. There's confidence, isn't it? He will deliver us. And then they say in the very next verse, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what are they saying there? They're saying God can deliver us. We believe he will. But if not, it's a but if not kind of faith. God will deliver us, we just don't know how. He may deliver us out of this fiery furnace, and we know he's able. But he may let us perish in this flame, and we will be with him. And in that is our deliverance. Some of us are really suffering here today. And you need to know that God is not punishing you. Billy Graham's grandson, Tullian Chavidgin, he's a pastor of a church in Florida, And he wrote this, you don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't have to find a way to conquer the odds, be stronger, or transform yourself into some better version of yourself. The pain you feel, whatever the degree, may be a reminder that things are not as they should be, in which case it is appropriate to mourn the gravity of that brokenness. The gospel is not ultimately a defense from pain and suffering, rather it is the message of God's rescue true pain. In fact, it allows us to drop our defenses, to escape not from the pain, but from the prison of the how and why to the freedom of who. We are not responsible for finding the right formula to combat or unlock our suffering. The good news of the gospel does not consist of theological assertions or some elaborate religious how-to manual. The good news is Jesus himself, the man of sorrows, the crucified God who meets us in our grief. When you are at the end of your rope, when you no longer have hope within yourself, that is when you run to God for mercy. And finally, he writes, we don't need answers as much as we need God's presence in and through the suffering itself. For the life of the believer, one thing is beautifully and abundantly true. God's chief concern in your suffering is to be with you and be himself for you. Thankfully, the good news of the gospel is not an exhortation from above to hang on at all costs or grin and bear it in the midst of hardship. No, the good news is that God is hanging on to you. Many of you know the Christian singer and songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. In 2008, his four-year-old adopted daughter died in a tragic accident when her older brother backed a vehicle out of their driveway and ran over her and killed her. For most of us, and I say most of us, this is unimaginable pain. Yet there are some even here in this room this morning who have experienced this kind of painful loss of a child. But what is God's word to us in any kind of pain or suffering we experience? God says, trust me. He says, trust me. In the unexpected death of a loved one, regardless of the circumstances, God says, trust me. In the chronic illness that seems to plague us for days, for months, and for some of us, for years, God says, trust me. In the life-threatening illness, when we wonder if we'll live to see next year, God says, trust me. In the emotional pain of a prodigal child, who seems to have walked away from a parent's Christian upbringing, or the similar pain of any family member who's never trusted in Christ, God says, trust me. In the pain of a loved one who's gone off the deep end and is in deep trouble as a result, God says, trust me. In the more everyday aches and pains that we all experience, the colds, the flus, God says, trust me in the challenges like a tough exam coming up, that can be suffering if you're in the middle of school, or a romance gone wrong, or a broken relationship, God says, trust me. Whatever you're facing this morning, or will face in the future, God's words are the same. Trust me, trust me, trust me. We're going to close with a song that Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote sometime following the death of his daughter. In this song, you can hear the very real, very honest recognition of the pain of that loss. But you can also hear loudly and clearly the but-if-not kind of faith in this song, the paradox of pain that we've looked at this morning. I want you to respond this morning. This song's about four minutes long. Respond however the Lord would have you do this morning. You can stand, you can kneel, you can come to the altar, you can just pray quietly as the song plays. But I want you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and let this song minister to you as we close. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for these clear admonitions to trust you, to look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, to look to you as our foundation, to look to you as the one who is always with us, who never leaves us and never forsakes us. Build those things into our hearts, Father, as each of us experience various kinds of suffering in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.